Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing award-winning author and sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild, Professor Emerita here at UC Berkeley, one of the most innovative and productive feminist sociologists of the last 30 years. Her latest book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, was nominated for National Book Award in 2016. Welcome to the program, Arlie. Thank you. You're known or you're called the founder of the sociology of emotion. You draw links between private troubles and social and political issues. Since Thomas Frank wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, a lot of people have been examining all this, but nobody's looked at it in an emotional way like you have. I had a feeling that underneath all the words that people say about policies and candidates was a feeling grounded in their deep experience. And I came to wonder, it's It's really about feelings, and the only way, best way to get at those feelings is to figure out what I came to call the deep story, a story that feels true to you. And you take the facts out of it, you take the moral judgments out of it, it's what feels true. And that determines where you feel resentful, how you feel envious, how you feel fearful, anxious. It all emanates from that deep story. And I think left, right, and center, we've all got a deep story. You explore this deep story through what you call a paradox in the Bayou country of Louisiana. Yes. In 2011, I already had a feeling that we were in a period of deep political divide, and the sides were getting further and further apart. There was a kind of a hardening of sides. And it wasn't because the left was getting more left. It was because the right was getting more right. And I also experienced myself as in an enclave here at Berkeley, California, where I've long taught sociology. And I felt in a geographic enclave, a technological enclave, and in a media enclave. And I figured I'd have to get out of that enclave and go as far as I could to a place that was as far right as Berkeley, California is left. What did you use to figure that out? I looked at the 2012 results, a re-election of Barack Obama, and the proportion of whites voting for that re-election in California was about half. And in the South as a whole region, it was a third. And in Louisiana, it was 14% of whites voted in 2012 for Barack Obama. I thought, okay, perfect. Louisiana (laughs) is the super south. That's where I want to go. And who do I want to talk to there? I want to talk to people who are white, older, and religious, evangelical, if possible. But mainly, I'm looking for people who are enthusiastic believers in the Tea Party. 2011, that's That's who I was talking to. I I interviewed over a five-year period, 60 people, 40 of whom were very enthusiastic Tea Party people, who eventually virtually all voted for Donald Trump. I didn't know that going in. He wasn't on the scene. But at the very end of my research in March of 2016, he came for a primary rally in New Orleans. And I had an epiphany. I realized that over five years, I'd been really getting to know some quite wonderful, complex people who were deeply troubled, anxious, afraid, felt scorned, 
and that I'd been studying the dry kindling and that at that primary rally when Donald Trump got up there and pumping the sky with about making America great again I had met the match the kindling match that's a great analogy I talked to a Pentecostal gospel singer at lunch one day at the Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana she said I love Rush Limbaugh she saw Rush Limbaugh as defending her against epithets that she felt were coming from the liberal coasts, that she was ill-educated, that she was backward, that she was racist, that she was sexist, that she was homophobic, and even a little fat, and feeling put down. And that was a feeling I, I heard a lot. Hmm. It was a defensiveness. Oh, you think we're rednecks. You, you don't think we're as smart as you are. Well, we are. And they are. There was a story about the sinkhole. I think his name is Mike Schaff. That's right. I met Mike Schaff at an environmental rally in Baton Rouge. And he got up to speak about what uh, he called the Bayou Corn sinkhole. He was weeping as he spoke of this. He was uh, holding shoulders of a woman, also a victim of this sinkhole. He said, she hasn't been in her house in 364 days. And, and he was pointing to her distress, but it was he who was weeping. And I thought, I should talk to this man. And I discovered that he was an ardent member of the Louisiana Tea Party. And later, he became an enthusiastic advocate for Donald Trump. And I asked, could I really see where you were born? Can we visit your old school? Where were your parents buried? Where did you go to church? Can I get to know your experience in your childhood? And he opened his life to me. My research began in his red truck going through some sugarcane fields where he's showing me what he called an old shotgun house where he and his six siblings had grown up the children of a plumber and a homemaker, Cajuns, Catholic. A very rural life. His father had been the plumber for people on the plantation and off So he was born in the Old South, but he grew up working in the New South, the new plantation system. That would be oil. The petrochemical plantation. That's right. I began to understand why he would look at the world the way he did. I visited him many times. We've gone out fishing, and he offered me a window into an answer to the red state paradox. How could it be that it's the poorest states, the states with the worst education, the worst health care, the most pollution, pollution and the most disrupted families, and those states which receive more financial help from the federal government than they give it in tax dollars were also those states that were suspicious of or reviled the federal government. I found out that Louisiana was an exaggerated version of that paradox because depending on the year, you can pick out a year in which it was the poorest state. And so 44% of the state budget came from the federal government. So it was an exaggerated version. And I found that the issue of the environment kind of exaggerated the exaggeration. And this guy, Mike Sheff, seemed like the key to me. If I could really understand him, how he he had suffered 
from an environmental disaster and yet could vote for Donald Trump who wants to abolish the EPA. He lived on a, a very beautiful bayou, a modest home that overlooked a canal that led into a beautiful swamp area. He knew all his neighbors. They were his community. And he once told me, well, we need to get government down to size, you know, and have people help their neighbors and friends because the government is doing that for us. It's diminishing community. But actually, I was to discover that what really diminished his community was a terrible drilling accident that could have been prevented with stricter environmental regulation. First, there were earthquakes. It was an area that had never been earthquakes before. And then people began to notice bubbles in the lawn water if it was raining. It looked like Alka-Seltzer tablets, and that was methane gas. People were evacuated because it, it was dangerous. If you lit a match, it could be an explosion. And it turned out to be the fault of a company called Texas Brine that drills down into the floor of the bayou to extract concentrated salt from an underlying salt dome, and that is used in fracking and in other industrial purposes. They knew there was a problem, and they drilled anyway, and the state of Louisiana let them do that. So the whole place was evacuated. He wanted to stay on. He got a gas meter, put it in his garage, <laughs> checked it's, it's it It's a great night. story. It's, checked it's it unbelievable. It really. is. It could have blown up. He said, well, I'm just looking after my neighbor's property. And then he said, actually, I don't want to leave. It was a, an abandoned community. So he lost his home. He lost his community, not to presence of government, but to the absence of government. And he was fully cognizant of this, a very intelligent, very mannerly, kind person. I began to wonder and to ask him very gently, why wouldn't the government help you? Why wouldn't you want Texas brine <laughs> to be more regulated? I think you have to peel away three kinds of answers, and one is layered upon another. The first was he saw federal government as an instrument of the North. There's some history to it that the South has felt conquered by the North first, and then in Reconstruction, carpetbaggers came down, and then civil rights workers came down. Then he wondered, you know, whether some outsider environmentalists were coming down, wagging their moral fingers. And the second is that Louisiana state government was actually doing the moral dirty work for the oil companies. Louisiana was a petro state, very heavily controlled by oil and petrochemical industry, which subsidizes the election campaigns of uh, politicians. And some of the politicians are themselves oil owners and do the bidding. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act are national laws, but they're each implemented by state governments. This state government is in the hands of oil. And so what it presents to citizens like Mike Schaff is a promise to protect. There's a language of protection, but not a delivery of that protection. So they're disappointed. Disappointed in the state instead of the oil companies. That's right. But we're, we're trying to understand the perspective of, of Mike Schaff and the many others. The government was an instrument of the North, an instrument of oil. It wasn't doing its job. When people looked at companies and they looked at the government there, they saw the companies were offering jobs. At least that was the rhetoric. 
I was to discover these are highly automated companies. And and more to come. And more to come. And they were actually importing Filipina pipe fitters. So there were very few permanent jobs, very few. Only 15% of the entire Louisiana workforce. And they're also handing out favors. A Governor Jindal gave $1.6 billion to the these petrochemical companies as incentive money. They took it from the public coffers to as incentive money. Please come to Louisiana. Don't don't go to Texas or anywhere else. And that incentive money, of course, gave a lot of money to the companies to give out. So there's a donation to the Audubon Society and to a bird sanctuary, football uniforms for Louisiana State teams. So there's a lot of PR that the company could afford to do. And so people said, oh, well, company, kind of generous. And and they looked at the state. I'm paying my taxes for the salary of these officials that are not protecting me. They had allowed this drilling accident to occur. So the second point was a instrument of oil. And that kind of is the picture of things that goes with that second thing. But I think the biggest of all was that the government seemed to them an instrument of the line cutters in what I call the deep story. You're standing in line as in a pilgrimage facing the top of the hill where you see the American dream. You've been in that line a long time. Mike Schaff hadn't had a raise in two decades. Your feet are tired. You've worked hard at a tough and dangerous job. Then you see some line cutters, blacks, who through affirmative action now have access to jobs that had formerly been reserved for whites. It would be women who now through affirmative action have access to jobs formerly reserved for men. It would be immigrants. It would be refugees. It would even be the endangered brown pelican of Louisiana with its oil-soaked wings because people would say, oh, well, you know, a lot of the liberal environmentalists are putting animals ahead of people. In this deep story, Barack Obama, as they felt it, was waving to the line cutters, supporting them, was sponsoring them, cutting the line waiters out, not representing them. So they felt suddenly strangers in their own land. Wow, I'm here following rules, worked hard, can't get there. They didn't look over the brow of the hill of the engine of capitalism at outsourcing, at automation. And so... They generalized from that that whatever the government did was now a little suspect. They were white men who were thought of as privileged. And in their heart of hearts, they thought, well, wait a minute, privilege of being white didn't trickle all the way down to right. me. I'm in a tough job. I may not be able to keep it. Families falling apart. And race, the privilege of that, also a little questionable. And so for those three reasons, one piled upon another. And nobody's representing them. And nobody was representing them. And then here comes Trump. That's right. And then Hillary says Trump followers are deplorable. That's right. How could it be that the Democratic Party, the party of the working man and woman, is losing its blue collar, not speaking to it? and not making people feel heard or recognized. They, they have a genuine beef, and they didn't see an alternative to Trump. 
it was more of a, a, a vote against yes. rather than for, I think. I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Trump. That's they didn't right. like him. They wanted it, to disrupt. Exactly. You use mourning in the title of your book. Yeah. And I was curious why you chose that term. Yes. I think it's so much easier for us to see the anger. Often under that anger, masked by that anger, is a fear and mourning because their way of life, honestly, is declining, is going away. And And I think they know it, but they don't want handouts. They know that they're on the verge of being in a place where they're going to need them. That's right. It's a tricky place. It's a very tricky place. In a way, I, I want to be their messenger out to say, wait a minute, there are real issues here. And it's Some not just party, Louisiana. Not it's just half Louis- of our country. That's right. And there has to be an alternative to the bad choices that, that we've been faced with and an alternative to the one we are stuck with now. What are you going to do with the results of this incredible understanding of these people? Yes, I've been giving that a lot of thought. It has made me want to join with uh, someone named Joan Blades, who is a co-founder of MoveOn.org, and who has instituted something called Living Room Conversations, getting left and right together to find common ground. I I think that's a start. And you did come across three or four things that you found common ground. Yes. Out fishing one day, again with Mike Schaff, he said, you know, we ought to get money out of politics. And I said, you know what, you're Tea Party and you're pro-Trump, but you have a lot of friends in Berkeley, California, who would (laughs) agree with you completely about that. Another thing he said was, you know, we ought to reduce prison populations. This is a waste of life and money, and we need to get them back to work. You know, give them their dignity, and these are nonviolent offenses. And you visited a prison there while uh, during the study. Yes, the large Angola prison, yes. the largest maximum security prison in the U.S. And the U.S. is the prison capital of, of the world. That was another thing that there was common ground on, and even the environment. Here's the thing: I'm doing next week. I'm going down to visit. Mike Schaff, in his new home, since old home was ruined, and he's again living on a bayou. He loves to fish. I'm taking my son because my son is one of the five energy commissioners for the state of California. He's in charge of renewable energy, which he's a passionate believer in, and he likes Mike Schaff. Mike likes David. So my thought was to all three of us go out in a boat go out fishing. I'll hold the tape recorder. I'll say, okay, you guys, I would like David from Blue State, California, environmentalist, and Mike, born on a plantation, grew up with oil, Tea Party Trump. I'd like the two of you to discuss how could we make sure that there's never another bayou corn sinkhole? Common ground or not? Let's just go see. So that kind of thing that through churches, through schools, through labor unions, I think we ought to try. So people see. to people. People to people underneath this escalating, harsh, half-true, half-not rhetoric at the national level. Let's just see if we can't compare views, notions of truth, 
and do it respectfully. Well, I wanted to ask civilly. you, speaking of your son going and talking about what he knows, and he might enlighten Mike Schaff about things he may not know about. What is the impact of facts to these people after this five years? In uh, a lot of discussions, people said, uh, oh, a lot of people work for the federal government, and it's just bloated. Uh, maybe 30 40 percent work for the government. I would leave the interview actually not knowing how many people work for the government. So I looked it up, my research assistant and I, and we found that 1.9 percent of all workers in the United States work for the federal government. If you add state public employees to that, county employees. If you add the active military, a little bit more, but altogether no more than 16% of the entire workforce works for the government. So it seemed larger than it was. Right. Uh, again, with the proportion of people who were on welfare that didn't work. Well, no, most people on welfare do work, in fact. And if you look at a food stamp recipient's Half of them work for fast food places at pretty close to minimum wage. And, of course, the new Secretary of Labor runs Carl's Jr. and doesn't believe in the minimum wage. But they're on food stamps because they can't earn enough. This is not a living wage. In a sense, this is corporate welfare because the federal government is chipping in to keep people out of poverty mm -hmm. because wages are too low. General yes. Honoré yes. kept talking about the psychology of the jobs that are provided by the oil industry. That's right. The talk, the rhetoric was jobs. When it came down to it, there were very few permanent jobs. In fact, Sassol, the largest petrochemical company in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, it's developing, it's, it's adding to itself. And in its material, it says, two-thirds of the new workers being added to Cecil are coming from outside Louisiana. And that's because to run these things, you need chemists with a PhD from MIT. That's mm -hmm. on the one hand. And you have Filipino pipe fitters coming in who are cheaper, actually. And you, you may have more trained pipe fitters or workers from Texas. Only a third of the new jobs are going to anybody that's born and living in Louisiana. That's significant. It's a little bit more like a third world country because there's something also called leakage. If you look at the money that the companies in Louisiana make, the profits aren't going back into Louisiana. 100% of profits would be going back to Louisiana if we're talking about small businesses. They, people live there, you know, gas station owner, and it goes back into the state of Louisiana. But these big multinationals, mm -hmm. the heads of them are not living in Louisiana. They're Sometimes uh, not even in the United States. Absolutely. Most of them not yeah. in the United States. British Petroleum, okay, that's London. If we're mm -hmm. talking Sassol, okay, that's Johannesburg. Magnolia, okay, that's uh, in Australia. So the reaction when people are faced with the truth of the facts. What has been your experience? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that. I have to go gently back to that. When people responded to the book, and I sent them all copies and then invited them to a dinner after the book came out, they mainly checked how I talked about them personally. <laughs> they, they didn't they read the say that, yeah. And how important you feel that is that they understand the facts behind this. Yes, you know? yes, I know. 
But I do think that we have to turn the same self-inspection on ourselves. Why are no conservative academicians coming in and embedding themselves in the Berkeley enclave and trying to figure out who we are and what we think? It's always the liberal progressives who try to understand everyone. I don't think we have been trying to understand. You know, I was looking around in sociology how much, how many other studies there were. There were some, a few very, very good ones, but not that many and not many the other way. I think we're we're both stuck in our enclaves. I suspect there will be some right-wing person, and I think that that would be a, a very good thing. Actually, next week in February, we're hosting a Tea Party Trump family from Louisiana, where the mother, very involved in the, in the Tea Party, and she voted for Trump, but her 17-year-old son is a Bernie fan. And so oh. I said to her, yeah. Why don't you come over to Berkeley and stay with us, and we'll show them around the Berkeley campus. You know, it's great with these living room conversations and the people-to-people kind of thing, but do we really have that kind of time? I worry about the time factor. You are right. You are completely right. I don't mean the empathic outreach to the people the Democratic Party has lost because of its disregard of the issues. I think it's one part of a larger program that I would like to see in place. We don't have at this moment something like a loyal opposition that's coherent, where there's a leadership. A respectful opposition. A respectful opposition. Mm -hmm. We're a bunch of very different, separate social movements, each with our own cause. We haven't quite cohered, I think. We're going to have to learn to do that. Do you think there are other people in these, let's call them red states, that feel the same way you do about wanting to get to know what we think better? Is it equal? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think they, they want recognition of them. I'm not sure how curious they are about us, but they have felt put upon by us. The line cutters have turned around and started to insult the people stuck. In this moment, this political moment, it's no time to sit back and just talk to yourself. I think this is the most important election, certainly in my lifetime, and maybe in American history. I think the shoe is on our foot to become activists as much as people were in the 1960s. There needs to be a discussion of the fear that is felt by people who feel like they're at the at the tail end of globalization and that that has been covered over and not addressed. There should be three pillars in facing forward. There's defending the values and institutions that are already there because they're going to soon be under attack and we should prepare for that. And the other thing is to put forward values that actually aren't on the table. What's the agenda? What what are the core beliefs? Let's let's put those forward. So first to defend, that's pillar 1. Second to assert, that's pillar 2. And third to reach out to Trump's supporters, not to Trump himself, but to his supporters to see if we can't get common ground and I think And we'll, that's what you're working on. We'll be surprised at how much is possible. Did you ever just feel like the elephant in the room was the lack of good education? Education in respect and civility. Education in respecting the people that make the world turn around. Um, True, but I mean more in terms of critical thinking, like the ability to 
know enough not to be voting against yourself, to understand the, the facts, like your son going to visit. Once they understand and someone takes the time to educate, then it's a different story. I think if our colleges and universities became supportive places, it might be easier for people to open up their minds to critical thinking. What do you mean and, by that, supportive? Well, when I think about many of the churches uh, preach that evolution is false doctrine, but those are places that people go to for solace, their community and support. It was the one place they could be dependent and could feel their fear and despair and mourning. And that's the very place where you learned that evolution was not true. And I don't think the solution is simply to get facts out there. I think the solution is to create social support in the projects in universities and colleges where critical thinking goes on. If you understand what I mean, there is an emotional dimension to learning, as there's an emotional dimension to politics and everything else. It has to be an atmosphere of respect and support when you are doing this exploration. So that could be a common ground issue. Yeah. Let's get to know each other, respect each other, and do some critical thinking along the way. What is the liberal deep story? We're all arranged around a public square, inside of which are institutions we're fiercely proud of. A science museum. And there are libraries and fantastic public schools. There's uh, a nature preserve. All of this is public. People who have made it are proud of it, happy to pay taxes for it. It means we're all able to enjoy this together and that that's what the Statue of Liberty stands for. Then some marauders come in with a steam shovel and they gouge out big chunks of concrete from this and they take that concrete out of the public realm and they start building a mansion just for themselves. They're the 1%. And we're incensed. What? Wait a minute. You're taking from the public and you're just giving to this selfish 1%. There's indignation, there's bafflement, and fury at, at that. Arlie Russell Hopeshield, sociology professor emerita at UC Berkeley. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. Tune in again next week at the same time.